When I was a kid, I was told that goldfish only have a three-second memory. Yeah, I've heard that. I searched the internet and quickly found that a goldfish's memory is much longer than three seconds. Oh, really? That myth has been completely debunked by evidence plenty of times. You know, Josh, I'm thinking there's a lot of myths out there about transition services and services in general that also need to be debunked. This is Josh. And this is Mandy. And you're listening to the Oregon Transition Podcast. Brought to you by the TTAN, the Transition Technical Assistance Network and professionals across the state. From rural to urban, from your living room to your classroom, to your community, to your employer, we are here to do a deep dive into the transition services in Oregon. Oregon, this is your story. Welcome to the Oregon Transition Podcast, Season 4. Today we're going to talk about transition myths. These myths are not always easily debunked by a quick internet search. So we talk to subject matter experts to find out what's real and what's not. And for the first time ever, we're going to be introducing the voice of Pod that's going to help us reinforce what these myths are. So, voice of Pod, let's hear the first myth. Myth. They are not ready to work. Hey, Pod people. This is Lon Thornburg. We are going to bust this myth. I have Teresa Knowles that I sat down with and had a little visit with and we talked about this and she had some great insights. She's a regional employment specialist with Oregon Developmental Disability Services. I think it comes down to motivation. If a person is motivated to work, if they're demonstrating or communicating somehow that they want to work, I think the rest of the skills will come. And so what's special about the ODDS services is that you know, Employment First motto is everyone can work with the right supports um, if they want to, if they choose to. So if somebody needs supports and they get a job and they're really excited and motivated to work, then ODDS supports can come in and support them and help them learn those skills on the job rather than having them achieve those skills and then going to work. Because oftentimes it's not very motivating to learn those sorts of things outside of the workplace. So real life examples or learning in a real life situation can be more motivating. They're already on the job. You know, they want to learn how to talk the talk. They want to do well on the job. That motivation is something that can't be taught. That That's totally dependent on the person, the student or the adult. And I think you can take the most skilled student, whether they have disabilities or not, and if they lack motivation, they're not going to have successful job placements. I think we all have stories of teenagers who have lots and lots of potential but lack motivation. The key here is that they're motivated. I think anything can be achieved if somebody's motivated. The big thing for me is to ensure that we're not putting barriers in place for people to get jobs, students to get jobs. So if somebody wants to get a job, they're motivated and they're willing to work on their, whatever they need to work on, on the job, then why not? Motivation and desire is so important. It's probably, for me, the number one key important component of students working. That was a great response from Teresa Knowles. Mandy, I don't know about you, but I'm motivated now. I think it's so interesting to hear her talk about the motivation factor and how that's such a huge part in finding a job. A student may be ready to work and 
it's not the right fit yet, or they don't have the perfect thing that they're interested in. And so it's harder to find a job when you're not interested in it. So from the school lens, if we're looking at everyone being, quote, ready to work, and we're looking at increasing motivation, how do we do that? I find success when students identify their strengths, their preferences, and their interests, and we can link that to possible jobs. When students see that something is positive and it's possible and it's something that aligns with what they are already doing and what they are already like, I think we're going to increase motivation there. We gotta tell students that they can do it. Agreed completely. And from the VR Prietz lens, really discovering what motivates you, what job path sounds interesting. As I said before, if we are able to tap into that special something that just drives you to move forward, of course there's gonna be a bigger drive for work. Of course there's gonna be a bigger drive for success because it's that thing that we're interested in, that thing that we just kinda can't stop doing. That is a motivating factor for anybody. I know it's a motivating factor for me. I enjoy kayaking and whitewater rafting and being on the river. And we have a saying when we're on the river that we always point positive. We point away from the hazards to the clear path that will get us down the rapids. It's the same thing when working with students. If we can help students identify their interests and their strengths and their preferences, and we are able to give them experience where they're able to try out a job or do a work experience in an authentic community setting, we find what they're doing well, I believe that they will be motivated. So, voice of pod, what's our next myth? Myth. Students cannot access vocational rehabilitation until their final year of school service. You know, I think that that is the way it used to be several years ago. But the amendment to the Rehabilitation Act of WIOA, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act in 2014, really called on all of us to start providing services earlier to youth, collaborate with schools in doing so. My name is Michelle Markle, and I'm the Statewide Youth Transition Program Coordinator for Vocational Rehabilitation. Is there an age range? 14, actually. So students can access vocational rehabilitation services as early as 14 years old. Are there any requirements or prerequisites before accessing VR? Well, there aren't really prerequisites, but there are eligibility requirements for vocational rehabilitation. And those are to have a documented disability that substantially limits somebody's chances of gaining, maintaining, advancing in employment and have a need for vocational rehabilitation services. Asked to access core services like I've applied, I'm found eligible, I have a plan. But then there's this other whole category called pre-employment transition services or pre-ETS. And for those, a student, it has to be a student enrolled in a school they have to be 14 to 21, and they have to be potentially eligible for vocational re rehabilitation, which just means they have a documented disability. You talked about the youth transition program. Who would be eligible to be served by the youth transition program? So, youth transition program is partnership between school districts and vocational re rehabilitation to provide pre-employment transition services and core 
vocational rehabilitation services. So school districts who have the YTP grant are contracted by VR to provide pre-ETs to all potentially eligible youth in that site or in that district. So that's like, you know, tons of students. And then as far as who gets the core services, it is a limited number of youth contracted with each site, usually around 20 to 25 for each full-time FTE. Those are the youth who are ready to work pretty quickly. Through pre-ETs, it's been determined that they're, you know, getting closer to exploring, getting closer in wanting to try to be ready to work. And that decision is based on conversation and evidence provided from transition specialists to the VRC. Do I need to be enrolled in YTP, the Youth Transition Program, to access vocational rehabilitation? No, 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 no. So we often call that direct referral. Students might say, I want, I want vocational rehabilitation services now. Transitions specialists and VRC are a little bit backed up. They're eager. Any family, anybody can always do a direct referral to vocational rehabilitation just by contacting their local office and asking for an orientation and going through that intake process. Do students who potentially could be eligible for developmental disability services, do they have to enroll in developmental disability services before enrolling in VR? No, they do not. They do not. I mean, ideally, we all know this. We want students and families to be accessing all the things that they're eligible for. But again, these are voluntary programs. And so we don't really get to determine that. Students and families and youth are interested in in VR they should apply early. All of our, our new literature and all of the new laws really encourage early involvement because we know we get better outcomes when we coordinate between agencies early on. Thank you, Michelle. Yes, that magical age is 14. The really good thing about VR is it's that individualized lens because we're not all the same and all our goals and wishes and desires and how we are going about things are different. So we can take that individualized lens, really looking at what you need and what fits best for you, we're not all the same. We are seeing success across the state when students are referred to VR early, way before they exit school. What that might look like was just meeting with VR counselor early and hearing about services, doing some pre-ads, and then enrolling VR before they exit school services. That might be two or three years before they exit school services. When we do that, the student is getting support from both the school and VR, and if they're eligible for DD, DD as well. Really having that team approach, because when we have a full support team moving past that school mark into that job market, we have everybody on our side. Individuals do not have to enroll in developmental disability services to receive services from VR. Enrolling in developmental disability services or vocational rehabilitation is voluntary. Of course, we want everyone to have as much support as possible, but we can't mandate. The other thing I really wanted to bring up with you, Josh, because I heard Michelle say this, and I think this is talking back to myth one, is that ready to work phrase. We heard her say that. And I believe what Michelle's really talking about is when a student decides, hey, you know what? I'm ready to go to work, not, is the student ready for work? So it's a self-advocacy phrase instead of a phrase being put upon a student. And how do we help students feel that they are ready? I think that goes back to the motivation issue that Teresa Knowles spoke about. Voice of Pod, what's our next myth? This is Jody Johnson. 
Joining me today is Ryan Farrow, Supported Employment Program Manager with CBRE at Nike World Headquarters. I'm seeking support from community members such as yourself to bust this myth. Myth. Employers are doing society a charitable act by hiring someone who experiences a disability. Really disagree with with that as a concept. It is definitely a myth. As a business, if we were to hire people out of the goodness of our hearts, in my experience as a job developer and coach uh, in the past, those are the jobs that don't last because they're not based on a business need. Um, We talked earlier about the win-win that comes when you have a job seeker with the skills and the qualifications and the supports in place to be successful that are paired then with a business need that they can help that business with. When that happens, that's what helps people to not only find maybe a career path or at least a job that is satisfying to what they want to do. It aligns with what their preferences are and their skills and abilities. And then the employer benefits as they do with any employee, because really employers are not doing us society, a charitable act by hiring people in general. And so that is no different than someone because they experience a disability. Another thing too, is that there, there was a, well, there was a report actually, it's called getting to equal by Accenture. It was, it's called the disability inclusion advantage. It was in 2018 and it weighed the different businesses that talk about their disability inclusion strategy. And what the report finds is that there is overall a significant increase amongst businesses that are considered disability inclusion champions. And those are companies that go through benchmarking that allows them to see how they measure up as far as, you know, are they really making an impact on really being inclusive people with disabilities in their workforce and seeing those candidates as valuable contributors. It showed that people who were the disability champions were more profitable, so they had more revenue, they had more return on investment to their shareholders. And so there actually is a business benefit as well. And the program that we run, there might be that conversation, but it really is about that win-win and that good fit. But there are also those economic drivers that really are impacting businesses because they're allowing themselves to think more inclusively, diversely, and having diversity of people at the table to help them in their business. So at the end of the day, hiring someone that has the skills to do the job that they need fulfilled. Exactly. When we work with different businesses on the Nike campus, for instance, we have a lot of different businesses that hire for a variety of positions. And the conversation is really around, hey, these are the needs that you have. You know, These are the job descriptions you may have, or these are the needs that are not yet in job description that we can create something together. Oh, you need good people that are reliable and are skilled workers. We support people that are reliable and skilled, and they are qualified to be here and to be considered as, as qualified candidates. That's really almost all you need to say, because that is the whole point of a relationship between an employer and an employee and what really helps people to see that this is not, like you said, a charitable contribution or in the past and still is sometimes referred to as corporate social responsibility. I think businesses do have a large role to play in that area, but the way that you frame it makes a huge difference on the narrative you create um, with with businesses and how they think about people with disabilities as um, capable or not. Josh, what can you say about that? I mean, what he said is brilliant. When an individual works with an employment agency to find a job, that individual is finding a job that they are qualified for. When an employer hires an individual, they are hiring a person that is going to do quality work and will benefit that organization. Anyone who wants to work can work in a job they are qualified for. And not only that, when you take the time to find that perfect fit of a job, 
you're in it for the long haul. This is not a short-term job. This is somebody who is committed and the company's committed to them. It's a marriage made in employment heaven. Mandy, I believe we have one more myth to debunk. Voice of Pod? Myth. I can't work. If I do, I will lose my SSI. Or, I can't work more hours. If I do, I will lose my SSI. You can actually work quite a bit. You can work full time and still remain eligible for SSI. But as far as what the payment is, usually folks wonder about, can I work at all and not have it affect my payment? With SSI, they will adjust down the payment when you begin working, but they do it in a way that you're always going to be financially better off at the end of the month by combining your paycheck with your adjusted SSI. My name is Josh Goller. I'm uh, one of the two WIN program managers. Can you be a little bit more specific about that? Specifically, the way they do it is they count a little bit less than half what someone earns when they're adjusting down that SSI payment. It's a little less than half because if someone is SSI only, the first $85 they make, SSI just doesn't count that. They exclude it, and then they count half of the rest. So that's why it's a little less than half. One example would be if someone makes $1,085 a month from a part-time job, the math works out that 500 of that is countable. And so SSI would go down by $500. That seems like a bad thing. I'm losing money, but you're, you have to combine the 1085 you just earned with what would roughly be about $300 in SSI on top of that. So you're going to have $1,400 at the end of the month instead of just your SSI payment alone. Josh Goller was so incredible to talk to, and I learned so much about benefits. That made a lot of sense to me. There is clearly an advantage to working. It's always scary when there's a reduction of income. So if you're in a situation where you are working, there is benefits counseling available to talk about what your income is going to look like after you start working. Absolutely. And I want to acknowledge it's so complicated to get those benefits. Talking to somebody really does help. So Mandy, this is only part of a longer interview you did with Josh, right? It is. And not only Josh, but Katie, who is also a win benefit coordinator, was able to join us. So we were able to spend 30 minutes talking about the whole gamut of benefits and just really their advice. We will be releasing a longer version of your interview in the future as our bonus episode. Yes, and I'm sure excited to have everybody hear it. Thank you for listening to this myth buster version of the Oregon Transition Podcast. We would like to thank Teresa Knowles, Michelle Markle, Ryan Farrell, and Josh Goller for debunking our myths today. Thank you for being on the pod. And I'd like to have a special thanks to Michael Burles, our voice of pod, and he has one more thing to say for us. Peace out, pod people, and be well. The Oregon Transition Podcast is brought to you by the TTAN, the Transition Technical Assistance Network, with support from Vocational Rehabilitation and Oregon Department of Education. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the individuals, not necessarily the supporting agencies. The Oregon Transition Podcast is produced by Mandy Younger, Josh Barber, Jody Johnson, and the Podfather, Lon Thornburg. Additional interviews are provided by members of the TTAM. Our theme music is composed by former transition student Boone Richter out of Brownsville, Oregon. Additional music provided by Lon Thornburg. 
For questions, comments, or episode ideas, please email us at OregonTransitionPodcast at gmail.com. And for the latest OTP news, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So Mandy, let's think of some other common myths. There's one right here that says lightning never strikes in the same place twice. That myth is wrong. Lightning strikes. I know, side note, I've been in five buildings that have either had a lightning strike right by them or on the building. Uh, I'm surprised you don't have superpowers right now from that.